through those things, if you trust and obey him. You know, and I want to piggyback off of that concept. We are beginning a Christmas series, and, and I don't really have a series per se, but I'm going to cover various Christmas passages. But I want to piggyback off of that and remind you that not only does he guide you and your individual lives, but in fact, he guides all of human history. This is why we can confidently say joy to the world as far as the curse may be found because his sovereignty is over all of the earth and he is so close to us and so imminent and so providentially involved that he orchestrates not only the individual aspects of your life but of the whole world. If you think of the earth as a person, if we personify the earth, we could say that there are no alternate routes with the earth. There are only alternate routes from our perspective. That God is guiding the earth, he's guiding human history in a linear fashion toward his designed, predetermined purposes. Amen? There is nothing, not a molecule, not a mountain, not a civil government, not a global pandemic that is outside of God's sovereign, loving, tender guidance and care. Amen? And this needs to be down in your bones. This is tidings of comfort and joy. And we're going to be reminded of this truth from what I think is one of the most overlooked Christmas passages. And it's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. Just one verse from Matthew 2. It says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Why did Jesus go to live in Nazareth? So that the word of the prophets might be fulfilled. That was the purpose. And what was that prophecy that the prophets gave? That he, Jesus, the Messiah, would be called a Nazar, a Nazarene, that one of his titles, one of his messianic titles, which would be on the lips of the people, would be Nazar, a Nazarene. Make sense? Now, where does this prophecy come from? Well, Matthew tells us it comes from various prophets, plural. So he's not giving us a, a word for wo- word. He is giving us a, a paraphrase of what all the prophets said. And here's one particular example. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, being the father of David. The Messiah will come forth from the lineage of King David as is promised by God to David. There shall come forth a branch. And that's the word right there. A nadzer. A nadzer from his roots shall bear fruit. Wow. We'll get into some more texts in a little bit here, but what does this mean? What is the significance of this particular prophecy? Well, the meaning of nadzer is branch. That's what it means. Branch. Um, but, but branch doesn't carry the proper connotation to you and I. 
A closer translation would be the word sprout. See, a branch, we have live oaks here. So when we think branch, it's still something pretty significant, right? <laughs> a branch can fall on you in Louisiana and kill you. Well, in that part of the world, a branch can't really kill anyone, right? Uh, but we would think of the word a twig, right? Or a sprout or a sapling, right? It's a diminutive title. Like around here, we say she uh, baby, right? That, that means they tea tiny, right? If, if someone puts a T in front of something, that's a diminutive, right? In Spanish, you put a ito at the end of the word. A burro is a donkey. A burrito is a little donkey. That's right. Think about that the next time you go to a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> but that's a diminutive. That's, it's, a, it's a grammatical technique. And natzer is one of those words. In fact, the, the town of Nazareth, the town of Nazareth meant branch, like our town, branch, over by Church Point. It, the connotation is twig or sprout. Of course, if you contrast that with Jerusalem, Jerusalem would be a mighty oak, right? A hub, a hub city, whereas branch is a nobody town in a nobody land, right? And what good can come from branch? You see, that's exactly the connotation that was with the city of Nazareth, Sprout City, and the people that came from Sprout City, Nazarenes. So why am I telling you all this? Well, one, the Messiah was promised to be vulnerable and exposed and tea-tiny, right? He wasn't going to come with a flash and flare. He, he would not be born to the, to the families of power. He would not be a, a person with great social credibility, high class, elite. He would be a, a sprout, a little sprout, shy baby. Right? Underwhelming, really. Certainly not intimidating. Nothing to be afraid of. That was the prophecy. Right? And of course, as you know, that was also the stumbling block for many. But the town Nazareth became, it was such a diminutive town, such a nowhere town, that the name a Nazarene became a derogatory term. So in the ancient times, and still a little bit to our day, cities would take on a certain um, uh, characteristic. And if you were from that city, someone would, could call you that as a derogatory term. Uh, obviously, if you call someone a sodomite from the city of Sodom, that has quite a negative connotation. Or we could say to Corinthianize. Look that up in the Bible. Look that up in the dictionary. To Corinthianize is to fornicate. I mean, the name of the city went hand in hand with debauchery and fornication. And now if you're from Corinth, everyone's like, oh, they're from Corinth. You see, certain cities had certain connotations. And Nazarene, a Nazarene, was a nobody. Even Jesus' disciples had this in their worldview and in just their everyday language. John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Well, come and see. Wow, isn't that something? Now, here's where it gets ironic. And God is the God of irony. He created the Greek tragedy. He knows how to write a story where the characters are doing the will of the narrator and don't know it. What I mean is the Pharisees refused to call Jesus by any of his messianic titles. 
They would not call him the son of God. They would not call him the son of man. When he referred to himself as the I am, they tried to stone him. They would not call him the prince of peace. They would not call him any of his messianic titles because they hated him. But there is one thing that they kept calling him, a Nazarene. Isn't that something? It was a derogatory term. How can this nobody come around here and tell us how to rule the kingdom? He's a nobody. He's a nothing from a nobody, nowhere town. Little sprout, right? Champ, right? (laughs) So God had Jesus be raised in Nazareth so that his enemies would unknowingly, unwittingly refer to him by one of his messianic titles. He shall be called a Nazarene, a Nazar. See, I told you there are no alternate routes with God. There was nothing outside of his sovereignty and his providential care. He turns even the mockery of his people into their joy and into their comfort and into their blessings and into their victory. But let's go bigger than just the mockery of the Pharisees. You see, because the the Messiah, he had to be called a Nazarene. And so he was from Nazareth. But he also had to be born in Bethlehem, didn't he? And that's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. He had to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. But there's more than that. He had to come out of Egypt like Israel before him. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And obviously, I don't have time to exegete all these particular passages, but you can see this real briefly here. When Israel was a child, referring to Jesus, according to the prophet Matthew, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And he had to enter into the region of Galilee like the sun dawns on a dark land. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1b, in the latter time, the days of the Messiah, He has made glorious the way of the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, so, now just enjoy this with me. That's the point of this sermon, to bring you tidings of comfort and joy. He has to be raised in Nazareth to be called a Nazarene, but he has to be born in Bethlehem, and he has to come out of Egypt, and he has to enter into Galilee as a light dawning on a dark land. Okay, wow. (laughs) Now, how does God choose to orchestrate all of this? Well, he doesn't go the easy route, in my opinion. He could have just told Joseph, he could have just given Joseph a vision at every step of the way. He does give Joseph some visions along various steps. But instead, he's going to travel all the way over to Rome to the most powerful man on planet earth, perhaps the most powerful man that's ever existed on the earth, Caesar Augustus, a man who himself believes himself to be God, the very manifestation of God, ruling from what he believes to be the throne over the earth, Caesar Augustus, the august one, means God. 
And Caesar Augustus, hoping to extend his dominion and to orchestrate his kingdom so that he can entrench more power to himself, issues a decree. You know the Christmas story, don't you? It's a census. Now, you thought the COVID lockdowns were disruptive? Okay. You think the Great Reset is disruptive or the Green New Deal, Deal is disruptive? Those of the most power, those with empire in their heart, issuing decrees for their own dominion. And all of us little plebes down here having to shuffle around and stay indoors and do all this stuff. It's like, God, we're just, are we like pawns down here? No, they are the pawns. Caesar Augustus issues a decree. So now Joseph and Mary, while she is pregnant with a baby, have to travel across the kingdom, across Israel, to Bethlehem. There, staying overnight, she gives birth in Bethlehem. Thank you, Caesar, for the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. Wow. But that's not all. There's a local wannabe king. His name is Herod the Great. He also thinks he is a god. And he does not want the competition. And so he begins to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. So God tells Joseph, go to Egypt. They travel to Egypt, following in the footsteps of Abraham before them. And then three years later, when Herod is dead, God calls his son out of Egypt. Thank you, Herod. Thank you for your policies and your decrees. Right? You'll see, as a Christian, you must have the eyes of faith to be able to see the upside-down world, which is really the right-side-up world. But then Joseph wants to stay in Bethlehem. It's, it has more opportunity than Nazareth. But God sends a vision and tells him, no, return to Nazareth. So they return to Nazareth where Jesus shines a light on the Galileans. Because Nazareth is a city in Galilee. And then he is raised in Nazareth so that the Pharisees unknowingly, unwittingly, would refer to him by one of his messianic titles, Nazarene. Like, Try to stay out in front of God. Okay, you you cannot, right? Try to unravel his providence. You cannot, but you can know with certainty, with faith, that behind anything that looks like a frowning providence is a smiling face for you and for his people. That's why we must walk not by the headlines. The Reformation will not be televised. That's why we cannot walk with our own doubts and despairs, but we must walk by faith in the text of Scripture, in the very promises of God. So that even when it doesn't look like victory, we know in our hearts through faith that it is victory. That Christmas cannot be and will never be canceled, no matter the plottings and the ravings of the world. Amen? It reminds me of Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot? They're raging and plotting against King Jesus. Well, they're plotting in vain. Why do they do that? And the rhetorical question is answered with, they are foolish. We don't know why they try to exert themselves in opposition to Jesus Christ's rule and reign. But they do. Uh, The kings of the earth set themselves they dig their heels in the kings of the earth that's the political rulers of the state throughout all the world 
They set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together. They're having meetings at a conference tables, metaphorically and in some cases literally. And their purpose of their setting themselves and their counseling together, meeting in their boardrooms, is against the Lord. And against his capital A, anointed, meaning Messiah. Why are all the rulers of our world currently conspiring against the dominion of King Jesus over all the earth? Why are they doing that? Oh, to ask the question is to answer it. There is really no good reason. They're blinded by Satan. They're filled with pride and hubris. They're very incredibly foolish. But what do you need to know in spite of all of their plotting and conspiracies? Well, the next verse tells us. Well, it tells us what they say. Let us burst the Father, the Lord, and the anointed's bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We're tired of his dominion. We're tired of his rule. We don't want King Jesus on the throne. We're going to take over the world with our power and our might. Then notice, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds those conspirators. Caesar Augustus, Herod the Great, even the little Caesars from nowhere towns, he holds them in derision. He writes history in such a way that they come out being the villains and the fools. And oftentimes they don't know it. You, have to, you know, I don't know if you know what a Greek tragedy is. It's where we get the word irony from. And irony was that a character in the play would be behaving in such a way that the audience knew was his own demise, right? And that he didn't know. And that made for laughter and comedy. It's precisely what God does to his enemies and those who refuse to repent. He laughs at them. Hmm. But there is more. Let's move on. More comfort, more joy here. Jesus was called a sprout from a sprout town. And that was a diminutive and a negative title. But to be called a sprout's not so bad, right? What's worse than being called a sprout? I think being called a stump is worse, right? <laughs> so be calling a sprout. Yeah, I'm a little tyke. I'm a shy baby. But there's a power within me, and I'm going to grow, <laughs> right? You know, we always encourage little men like to be tough, you know? And, and all right, champ, you get them, champ. But we know one day that kid's going to be able to take us. One day that kid's going to be bigger than all of us, right? Jesus is a sprout, but sprouts grow. Stumps don't grow. Sprouts grow. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. This is the second verse in our text. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the sprout, the nadzer, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Skipping down to 3b. And he, the little tyke, shall strike the earth with the rod of his, say that with me, mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. The sprout's done grown up. So much so that he is governing the earth by his words from his throne, administering justice and mercy. Wow. 
Verse 6, his rule shall have an impact on nature itself so that everywhere the curse might be found, it might be rolled back. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The entire earth under his dominion and rule is experiencing a, a minor, at least, lifting of the curse. Paradise is being restored, according to Isaiah Wow. Verse 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. How full, Pastor Brandon? As full as the waters cover the sea. That's full. You see, the thing about being called a sprout is it's a derogatory term, but sprouts grow. And most certainly he would grow, would he not? Would his dominion not grow? In fact, the Bible says of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. That's a lot of growth. Wow. See, but Pastor Brandon, I hear you. I hear you. I've been hearing this. You've been preaching this Christmas sermon for 10 years. Okay. How can anything good come from this world? It's a good point, right? I mean, when you look at a dead, judged stump, you don't expect a mighty oak to come up out of its roots. You know what a stump is, right? It's dead. But it's not just dead. It's chopped down. It's been judged fruitless. Are we to look out of this world and think that something good could come from this, out of this? This is what we mean when we say our God moves in mysterious ways. He causes bread to fall out of a cloudless sky. You're in a wilderness. There's nothing around. Nothing but a stump to see here, guys. Bread falls out of the heavens. That's how he moves. That's how he likes to save so that he gets all the credit. He can cause water to flow out of rocks. And if you can't gather the bread... You can't get up out of your tent in the morning and go gather the bread as it is there with the dew of of heaven. Then he will have it flown to you by ravens. Yep, that's what he did for one of his prophets. And if the ravens can't get in, he'll just have it appear in your little jar like he did for the widow. (laughs) I'm looking at this jar, it's dead empty. There's nothing here. Or maybe it's the little boy. There's no bread and fish. Oh, yes, there is. Look again. So you can't, you can't, Live your life with your eyes fixed on the emptiness of that basket. You must live your life fixed on the promises of God, which are victory and bounty and abundance and joy, even in the midst of affliction and suffering. Even the suffering itself is a victory. He is the God who calls up billions of children, so many children you could compare it to the stars of the sky or the sands of the seashore, and he calls up all of that out of a barren womb. Life from death, light from darkness, emperors out of babies, amen, Nazars out of stumps, and then kings out of Nazars. So this is the Christmas season, right? I want you more than anything to rekindle your faith in Christ. Say no to despair, amen? Say no to despair, 
And look for the sprouts from the stumps in your life. Do you have a stump of a marriage? Right. You have a stump of a life, a stump of a vocation, a stump of a future? Then you're right where God wants you. You have a stump of a nation, a stump of a world. We're right where God wants us. Amen. Let's all stand as the musicians come forward. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for us to be given these eyes to see. Father, would you remind us this Christmas season that everything works according to your plan and that your plan is set and your plan is good and that your plan is glorifying to you. May we see everything as a means toward that end and may we not doubt when our circumstances look bleak. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen.